Our sermon text will be Luke chapter 1, looking today particularly at verses 51 to 56. Luke chapter 1, verses 51 to 56, which is basically the second half of Mary's Song of Praise, usually called the Magnificat. And um, before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless your word to us at this time. Father, may we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and understanding hearts that are meek and willing to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read the whole thing from verse 46, but as I said tonight, looking particularly from verse 51 to verse 56. So starting at 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Mary sings about salvation. She sings about the salvation that God is working. And if you wanted to um, take a strict reading of the text or the words that you find in the things that she says, you would be forgiven for thinking that Mary is singing only about the salvation of faithful Israelites. I mean, that. That is the way it looks. She speaks of Abraham and his offspring forever. She quotes the Hebrew scriptures. She, she's, she's thinking as it were in truly Jewish terms and in a truly Jewish frame of mind. The Messiah came to and through the line of the Jews the family of the Jews or the nation of the Jews. Yet we have to understand and we have to accept Mary is singing about our salvation, all of us. You know, did she know that she was singing about the salvation of people in Australia almost 2,000 years later? Well, we weren't literally on her mind or any other nation actually around about the world. Mary knew that promises had been made by God to her ancestors, to her fathers, she calls them, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary knew that promises had not only been made to Abraham, but to King David, that King David would have a son whose throne would be eternal, whose son would be a servant of God forever and ever and ever. The salvation that God was working, though Mary may not have been conscious of it, 
was a salvation of all who are considered to be the people of God, of all the people whom God has chosen or elected for salvation from before the foundation of the earth. God was doing an even greater work, we could say, than Mary was most likely aware of. And she was aware that this was an incredible work, that this was a great and a wonderful work. I mean, the the the, the tone of the song, the praise that she's lifted up to is just, um, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful, wonderful song filled, as we looked at last week, with scripture reference upon scripture reference, the second half of the song being no different to the first in that it is filled with references that someone who is familiar with the Hebrew scriptures would have picked up. They would have understood what it was that Mary was saying And yet the salvation being worked is a salvation for more than just the Jews in Palestine under Roman slavery. It's the salvation from sin. It's the salvation from slavery to death. It's salvation from the wrath of God. You know, we often think about being saved and we think about being saved from sin or being saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin, being saved from the power of Satan. We think about the fact that the scripture tells us that, you know, all the world is under the power of the evil one. And so when we think about being saved, we think, you know, I'm being saved from all of these things. This is wonderful. This is glorious. This is good. And surely it is but we're actually being saved by God from his own judgment. The reason that all the world is under the power of the evil one, as we read in 1 John, is that God has handed them over in judgment. The reason that people are enslaved to sin is that God has handed them over in judgment. And judgment has already begun in the world. You know, there's there's no neutrality. You know, there's this... this it's we lo- we like to think in terms of um, somehow or other there being a middle ground, and people are in the middle ground and they're choosing whether they're going to go to the right or to the left. And often, you know, when when we speak to people, we do speak that way because in the end, you're trying to communicate to people that there are consequences to their deeds, there are consequences to the wickedness of their heart. So you do sort of speak about choosing one way, choosing another. In reality, the way this is presented in Scripture is that there is either faithful obedience and service of toward and of the living God and there is slavery to sin. And there's nothing in between. And when we're talking to someone who is not a Christian and saying that you need to repent and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, seek forgiveness even now, We're speaking to a dead sinner who can't do those things unless God enables them to do those things. There's no, as it were, neutral ground. No one's just walking down the middle of the road and uh, they might make the right choice in the future or they might make the wrong choice. Everyone was born, if you want to use that road idea, everyone was born on the wrong side of the line. Everyone was born in the darkness. Everyone was born in sin. 
you know, sinners born of sinful parents. Everyone was born um, at a disadvantage, born in Adam, you know, the first man, the first sinner. Everyone was born there in the world, in darkness. It's only by the saving grace of God that one is brought from darkness to light. It's only by God's deliberate action that one becomes a Christian, a person who is in Christ. Nothing was different in Mary's day. There were the faithful and there were the faithless. There was a nation of Hebrews, a nation of Jews, Judea it was called, who had the scriptures, who heard the scriptures. They didn't necessarily believe what they heard. They didn't necessarily believe their promises. They weren't born innocent because their parents were believers. Salvation is accomplished by God, by God's power, for God's glory. And God's saving grace falls upon whomever God has elected to salvation. And it's not based on anything in the one being saved. Who knows why God loves anyone? I can't tell you. Why did why did God choose to open my eyes? I can't tell you. <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing in me or about me that would have attracted the grace of God. There's nothing in me or about me that would have made God desire me for my own sake. God set his saving love upon me because he did. That's the best answer I can give you there. You see, I'm only a man. I don't know the mind of God. Scripture tells me that God was gracious and merciful towards me for his own reasons and for his own glory, and that I myself was dead in my sins, and I was an enemy of God, and I had nothing to offer. Well, All of those things that I'm talking about, those are the things that Mary has sung about. Looking at verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Turn in your Bibles to um, the book of Isaiah and chapter 53. This salvation... This salvation that um, we rejoice in, this salvation that has been gifted to us, this salvation which cannot be taken from us, this salvation which will carry us on and into eternity and into the presence of God forever, it comes to us from God. Looking at verse 1 of Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, we, we read Isaiah, um, Isaiah 52, 13 through to Isaiah 53, 12 here tonight. And what we saw was that it was basically the song about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about how, it's about the very means by which God accomplished what you might want to call the legal transaction that is our salvation. 
And we're told that people did not esteem him. People did not consider him to be one who was worthy of respect. Who has believed what he heard from us? How does one lay hold of this salvation? How does one lay hold of this arm of the Lord that has been revealed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What does Mary sing about? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He scattered the proud. He has shown strength with his arm. He's revealed his saving power. The one to whom the harm of the Lord has been revealed is the one who believes the message that is taught. This, this revelation of God's will in saving his own people is explicitly tied here in Isaiah 53 verse 1 with believing the message that's taught. Remember, Mary was praised by Elizabeth at verse 45 of Luke chapter 1, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believes that the arm of the Lord is to be revealed. The saving arm of God has been revealed in the fact that Elizabeth is carrying a child, whom we would later know as John the Baptist, and that she herself is carrying a child who will indeed be the very revelation of the arm of the Lord. Now think of it, just just the very term, the arm of the Lord. What do we know about God? What does Jesus say about God in the Gospel of John? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit, you know, we barely even know what that means. Honestly, we barely even know what that means. Spirit. Well, we know what we know that spirit doesn't mean body, doesn't mean bones and flesh. We know that God thinks, God speaks, God is self aware. We know that there are three persons who are God. God is spirit. Mary sings of God showing the strength of his arm. Isaiah sung of the Lord revealing his arm in salvation. It's not a literal arm, although it's a nice picture. It's a nice picture. It's a good picture. You know, a man's, a man's right arm, considering that most men are right-handers, I don't know if there's any lefties here, but most men are right-handers and most of us are much stronger in our right arm, and we can do a lot more with our right arm than we can with our left. God has revealed his strength, his power, his ability to save. God has done great things. Turn to Psalm 98. Starting at verse 1, Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Isn't that an interesting way of saying things? God's right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Ask yourself the question, did God need saving? The obvious answer is no, God never needs saving. Nobody saves God. God was not saving himself even. 
Yet it says he worked salvation for himself. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. Can you see, I say to you that Mary sings in basically scriptural phrases. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. His, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God revealing his power, his holy arm, his right hand, is God working salvation for his own glory. You know, we have a phrase, you know, it's it's come from sort of modern warfare where weapons are very destructive and there's, you know, there's a thing called the death zone around certain weapons. Well, we have this phrase, collateral damage. You know, it used to be you shot an arrow, the arrow hit one man and one man was killed. If you killed a man in a sword fight, you were fighting one man, you killed the man you were killing. Now, you launch a bomb, however you launch it, whether it's from an aircraft, whether it's self-propelled, whatever, when it explodes, you have collateral damage. There's a death zone around that site. God saves particularly. God saves whom he wants to save in the way that he wants to save. God saves according to his own righteousness. God saves for his own glory. And where the collateral, you know, that that picture I was giving of collateral damage, God revealing his own glory through his saving power and where the beneficiaries of that glory of God, that self-revelation of God. God's glory is the greatest good. The revelation of God's glory to God into God's creation is the greatest good. People being saved for the glory of God, revealing the glory of God, bringing glory to God is more important than the salvation of the individual people. God is revealing himself in saving his people. Mary sings, she goes on to sing in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In Psalm 8, we read of God ordaining praise from the lips of children. Just turn quickly to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God has scattered the proud. God has no respect for mankind's pride. God has no respect for mankind's boasting in his own abilities. So many think they're mighty. So many think they're great. So many think they can work their own salvation. They can run their own lives according to their own desires. God laughs at them. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
boastful people, people who think they can defy God, people who think that they don't need God. God cast them down. He cast them down. They have rebelled against him and he casts them down. He has exalted those of humble estate. God's chosen the unlikely. You know, consider that which we read in 1 Corinthians. And let's look at it once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. The world did not know God through wisdom. Through wisdom. All the abilities of mankind to study, to research. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. The message to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Mary rejoices that God has brought salvation to people like herself, of humble estate. She sings on in verse 53 of Luke chapter 1, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Once again, you've got references to the Psalms worked in here. If you want to turn with me, just look quickly to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a wonderful and um, rejoicing song. The people are rejoicing in God's faithfulness in saving them in various situations. We'll read from verse 1 down to verse 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He has filled, back in Luke chapter 1 verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Those who think they have all they need those who think that they're all set up, those who think they have nothing to fear, those who think that that which they have in the world is all that they need because the world is all that there is. God sends them away empty and they may stay wealthy till the day that they die. But the day that they die is the day 
Well, basically, it's not the day that they enter into the presence of our Lord. It's the day that they enter into the presence of their Lord, their underlord. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy. And there we have it. Mary singing about the people of God. As she knew it, the people of God were the people of Israel. They were the people who had the promises. They were the people who had the scriptures. They were the people who had the temple. They were the people who had the priesthood. They were the people who had a king called David who had received the promises of God. He has helped his servant Israel. But we need to remember these things, don't we? When we think this, when we read this, we need to remember what scripture tells us. Read or turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul has just um, basically at the end of Romans chapter 8, he's finished rejoicing in the greatness of God's salvation. He's at one of the very, very high points in Scripture, speaking about the sovereign salvation of God. Let's start reading from verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They are Israelites but they haven't believed in the Saviour. They haven't repented. What does he say? Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted. As offspring. Mary's right. Jesus came to save Israel. God has helped his servant Israel. But as we look at all of Scripture, we find that that means more than just one tribal group of people. That means more than just one biological gathering of humanity. God's servant Israel are those who are born of the promise. The promises God made to Abraham, the promises God made to David, the promises God made in his word concerning salvation and eternal life, those are promises for anyone who believes. Those are promises for anyone who believes. And so Mary sings of the promises that God made to Abraham Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Where do we get that from? What's she referring to? Well, she's, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham has been tested. God had said to Abraham, take Isaac to the top of the mountain, to the place appointed, and there you are to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. We know the story. Abraham in faith does as he is told. He says to his son that God will provide the sacrifice. And he reasons, we're told later in scripture, he reasons in his mind that 
Isaac will be resurrected, that there will be a resurrection. Let's look at the promises God makes to Abraham. Genesis 22 from verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's a blessing here for you and I. We're members of all the nations of the earth. Most of us can hardly really truly trace our heritage. We might be able to go back a few generations. My great-great-great-grandfather, I believe it was, came out from England. But where were they before that? I couldn't tell you. On my mother's side, my great-grandfather came out from Sweden. But where were they before that? I couldn't tell you. People don't stay in the one place. The history of the world is a history of people moving, mixing and emigrating. But through God's promise to Abraham, the nations are blessed. You and I are blessed. And God has always saved in this way. God has always saved by revealing himself as God who saves and by calling on his people to believe his promises, to believe his word. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. The people have sinned against God. God has interceded for the people. God has asked that the Lord would reveal himself to him. The Lord reveals himself to Moses. Exodus chapter 34, reading at verses 6 and 7. God describing himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God reveals himself promising to be a God who saves. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We're called on to believe that about God. This is God's self-revelation of himself. Believe me, says God, when I tell you I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. God speaks to us of himself in these terms. But then he reminds us of something. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And we all realise, I think, at that moment, there's a problem. There's a problem. It's wonderful to hear 
that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But if you've committed iniquity, transgression and sin, surely you're guilty. If you've done it, you're guilty. It's it's really simple. And then God says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. But who will by no means clear the guilty? You say, I'm caught between, you know, the rock and the hard place, so as to say. Yes, I want this God who is merciful and gracious. I want this forgiveness of iniquity, transgression and sin because I know I'm guilty. But God says he will by no means clear the guilty. Something must be done. Someone must be cleansed. It must be as though they had never sinned. Something must happen in order that God can look upon a sinner and not see guilt. And that something can't be a fantasy. And that something can't be just as simple as getting um, a whiteboard and using an eraser and writing down and rubbing out that which was written. This is God we're speaking of. God, perfect in knowledge. Absolutely perfect in knowledge. God who knows our guilt. God who knows our thoughts. God who knows our deeds. God who knows the things that we do. You know, it's we're not talking lightweight, stupid things here. Grandparents have a tendency, I think, to love their children to a fault in a way. And, you know, it's the way it is. You know, we sort of, we figure that, the parent of the child will discipline the child and all we have to do is the sweet and the fun stuff, the happiness and the joy stuff, and let the faults be worried about by mum and dad. They're not our problem. We're the grandparents. We raised them. We raised the mum or the dad. We corrected them. We straightened them out. We were aware of their faults. As far as the grandchildren are concerned, we choose to see nothing except the good. We choose to see nothing except that which we want to see. Well, that, that'll work for me. I'm just a man. My memory is not perfect. If I want to see something some way, I'm fool enough to fool myself into seeing it that way. It's a fact. And it's the truth about all of us. We can see things the way we want to see them. But this is God we're talking about. Perfect in knowledge. Perfect in memory. God doesn't just forget things. So what happens? How does this work? Well, let's turn to Psalm 103. Now, I want you to hold in your mind that which we just read of God in Exodus chapter 34, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's God's self-description of himself. Reading from verse 6 of Psalm 103, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, this is the reference back to Exodus 34. The psalmist is saying, remember what Moses learnt about God when God revealed himself? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is the stead, is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So this Lord God, this Yahweh, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, but he separates us from our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How would this happen? We believe that which God has promised. We believe in the things that God has revealed to us of himself. Those whom the Lord God is calling fasten on to that thing that God says about himself, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's encouragement there. You hear what Yahweh is saying. Come to me seeking forgiveness. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Come to me humbly seeking forgiveness. Believe my revelation of myself and I will cleanse you. How would this happen? Well, we've read it, but let's read it again. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Remember that which Mary sung about? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This great and mighty salvation that God works in the revealing of his arm, in his saving power, is accomplished through transferring our guilt and our iniquity onto one who was not guilty. Our sins are accounted as his sins. His righteousness is accounted to be our righteousness. He got treated the way we deserve to be treated so that God can look upon us and treat us the way he deserves to be treated. God looks upon us as his children in Jesus Christ our Lord, clothed in his righteousness, and in believing his promises, in believing the promises of God, in repenting of our sins and seeking forgiveness, we receive it. Gentiles, people of all the nations like you and I. Am I sure that's in the scripture? I'm positive. Would there be an example in Scripture? Would there be an example in Scripture that would tell us these things, where we might believe these things, where Gentiles repent and God forgives them their sins? Well, there actually is. There really is. Turn to the book of Jonah. 
Fast recap of the book of Jonah. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. The people of God or the enemies of the people of God at this time are basically the Ninevites. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and there I want you to preach the message of repentance. Jonah says, I don't want to preach to those Gentile mongrels. They're scum. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. You've told me to go east. I'm going west. And he got on a boat headed for the regions of Tarshish, which is probably in the area of Spain. God says, that's, that's, that's really funny. I find that quite, quite amusing. You think you're going to get on a boat and run away from me. Excellent. I get to play with you for a while. And so God sends a great storm, scares the idolatry out of the sailors. The storm scares the idolatry out of the sailors and they make promises to God and Jonah has them throw himself into the sea. Then Jonah is swallowed, as we know, by a great fish, miraculously preserved and vomited up on the seashore. And he goes and he goes to Nineveh. And in Nineveh, he starts to preach. He starts to warn them that God has planned to destroy them. God relents of the disaster and calls and um, receives their seeking of salvation. Jonah's not happy about this, you know, amazing thing. I would love to see a 1,000 people repent, 20,000 people repent, a whole city repent, but not Jonah. Jonah was a Jew, and Jonah knew that his own people were hard-hearted and not repenting, and here was God bringing the people of Nineveh to repentance. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What did he just quote? What, where did he draw those words from? You've got to think your way back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, God's self-revelation of himself. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. These Ninevites, a violent, brutal people, the enemy of the people of Judah, haters of God, idolaters, Jonah wanted to see them all get struck by bolts of lightning. God sends him there to preach and Jonah says, I don't want to preach because I know that you're a merciful God, gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And when he goes and he preaches, they repent and Jonah is forced to call to mind. Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. The promises of God are saving promises and that salvation comes through faith. Believing the word that is preached. Isaiah 53.1, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Who has believed our report? 
back to the song of Mary. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I'm not saying she knew it, but she was singing of salvation to all the world. She was singing of salvation to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. She was singing of salvation to people like you and I, here and now. Verse 56 tells us that Mary remains with Elizabeth around about three months and returns to her home. And I bet you they had three months of wonderful fellowship. Two believing ladies filled with the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in the grace of God that they carried within them a gift from God, that God was working salvation, that God was intervening in history, that God was not leaving mankind to himself. Always remember that. If God wants to destroy someone, he can actively destroy someone if he chooses to. But if he just simply leaves a person alone, and leaves a person to their own devices, they will destroy themselves. They will destroy themselves. God intervenes. He gets involved. He sends his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The arm of the Lord is revealed, and salvation comes to whoever believes the report. Mary sings of these things. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the salvation that you have worked on our behalf through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we praise you for the glory that you have revealed in your saving power. Father, thank you that you have made us your own. Father, we rejoice in the fact that though there was nothing good in us, yet you have set your love upon us and made us your own through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, may your praise ever be on our lips and may we rejoice always in your salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.